Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rogue ABA exam preparation audio files covering section FK of the BCBA task list 4th edition, Foundational Knowledge. My name is Nick Ostosh, a course instructor at Rogue ABA, and I'll be guiding you through the tour of this section. In this section, we will review the philosophical assumptions of our science, different forms of behavior analysis, and go over some of the basic concepts used in our field. The material in this audio guide is based on Cooper, Heron, and Hewitt's Applied Behavior Analysis, 2007, Malott and Shane's Principles of Behavior, 7th edition, 2014, Rogue ABA coursework, and notes from the author's experiences in the field of applied behavior analysis. Although it may seem silly at times, whenever an active student responding opportunity comes up, we encourage you to participate. We have done our best to make the active responding opportunities compatible with any activity you may be doing while listening. For example, if you're driving, remember that your number one priority is to drive safely with studying as a bonus feature. Whenever you hear this sound, it'll be time for a question. And whenever you hear this sound, I'll provide an important statement for you to repeat. Let's hop right into it. Our first section is to explain and behave in accordance with the philosophical assumptions of behavior analysis. FK01, lawfulness of behavior. For behavior to be a subject worthy of scientific approach, we must believe in lawfulness of behavior. The only reason hard sciences are validated is because they operate based on consistent laws with which if this happens to this stimulus, this will be the outcome. For example, in physics, if we roll a ball down a hill and account for every variable that may impact the speed, friction, the steepness of the hill, wind, etc., we can predict exactly how fast the ball will go and where it will go. Skinner was one of the first to note that this is true of behavior as well. Skinner said, control the relevant variables influencing behavior and you will see order. Our science relies upon the factuality of this statement. If there are variables that affect behavior that are unable to be studied, then a scientific approach to behavior cannot exist. However, our vast amounts of research suggest that Skinner's statement is, in fact, true. Up next, we'll talk about selectionism and how it relates to behavior. FK02 Selectionism, Phylogenic, Ontogenic, and Cultural Selectionism refers to the selection of traits and behaviors over time by genetics, the environment, and social communities. In radical behaviorism, this is important because it refers to how the behaviors that are the most functional in a given environment and in a given situation will be the behaviors that continue to occur. This is ontogenic selectionism, meaning that the selection comes from the environment and shapes how individuals act. Phylogenic selectionism refers to the selection of traits over generations of individuals. Like with natural selection, over time, Individuals who have traits that further their ability to survive and reproduce will outnumber those who do not. For example, if a bird's beak shape is in a shape that allows them to eat more bugs than other birds in an environment that has scarce supply of bugs, the birds with the favorable beaks will spread their genes more and will start to dominate the population. Cultural selection refers to the selection of practices that are typical and reinforced by individuals of a culture. Depending on region, ethnicity, or affiliations, certain practices will either be reinforced or punished by the community. For example, people in America are more likely to shoot fireworks off if it is the 4th of July, and in Mexico, it is not taboo to eat bugs. Next up, we'll review the concept of determinism. FK03, 
Determinism. Determinism, another term relating to the lawfulness of behavior, is the belief that outcomes are determined if exposed to certain stimuli and that these outcomes are fixed. Whatever happened is supposed to have happened because the conditions determine that outcome. We must take a deterministic viewpoint when intervening on behavior because we need to trust and test the variables that are believed to control behavior and also trust that there are always clear variables that account for behavior. Next up, on to empiricism. FK04, empiricism. Empiricism refers to the fact that the subject matter of behavior analysis relies on observable features of the environment and of behavior. In behavior analysis, we don't focus our study on things that cannot be observed, such as emotions, neuroelectrical signals, or the workings of the human conscience. We focus our studies on those things that are directly observable and how certain stimulus changes will affect behavioral outcomes. Empirical phenomena should be able to be observed by a measurement system that makes sense. Although things such as hormonal releases and neurotransmitter synapses are observable with the right tools, for reasons of practicality, they are not the focus of a behavior analyst's analysis of behavior. Next up, parsimony. FK05, parsimony. Parsimony refers to simplicity of explanations. The idea of parsimony relates to the philosophical assumption of Occam's razor, which states that often the most simple explanations are the correct ones. This is one reason why we tend to discourage mentalism, because often mentalistic explanations of behavior include phenomena that are not empirical or observable, such as the mind, emotions, or unconscious mental forces. In behavior analysis, we look for simple explanations based on the observable environment, because that is what often leads to accurate explanations of behavior. Of course, the hypotheses we form based on these principles are experimentally tested. Now that we know how to be parsimonious, let's talk about what it means to be pragmatic. FK06, pragmatism. To be pragmatic is to be effective and goal-oriented. Behavior analysis should always be pragmatic. We should identify the key variables that impact our behaviors of interest and modify them to get the desired change, which we should clearly outline. Our methods should clearly demonstrate experimental control over behavior. Next up, environmental explanations of behavior. I hope you're pretty good at these by now. FK07, environmental as opposed to mentalistic explanations of behavior. Mentalistic explanations often use hypothetical constructs to explain behavior. A hypothetical construct is something that does not exist or does not relate to behavior, yet is used in the attempt to explain behavior. Some examples include the conscience, intuition, or mind. When one of these is used to explain behavior, we call it an explanatory fiction. When we attribute the cause of behavior to explanatory fictions, we often get caught in a loop of circular reasoning. For example, Johnny picked up the trash because he follows his heart. One could ask, how do we know he is following his heart? Well, obviously the answer is because he picked up the trash. But why did he pick up the trash again? Because he's following his heart. Duh. As you can see, this line of questioning could continue forever without any progress. An environmental explanation of behavior, for example, one that focuses on reinforcement, will keep us out of that circular reasoning trap. For a more scientific understanding of why Johnny picked up the trash, let's look to Johnny's environment. Johnny picked up a piece of trash that was on the ground outside of the classroom. The teacher went to thank Johnny sincerely. 
Johnny smiled and blushed as the teacher went on to announce to everyone, You see how Johnny just helped keep our school clean without even being asked? It's because he has such a big heart. As time went on, the teacher noticed that Johnny was picking up random pieces of trash more and more, and she continued to compliment him. Johnny continued to pick up trash because he now had a past history of this action resulting in attention from the teacher. Unlike the idea that Johnny had a big heart, these instances of attention were empirically observable and measurable. Now, how do we know that the teacher's attention was reinforcing? We know because it increased Johnny's frequency of picking up trash in the future. We could even experimentally prove that this is the reason by having the teacher withhold her attention and seeing the behavior decrease. If it were not to decrease, it would likely be because there was an undiscovered reinforcement contingency, possibly the behavior resulting in an automatic removal of the site of trash. But if the decrease does in fact occur, then we have proof that the teacher's attention is the reason that Johnny was picking up the trash. There is no need to bring speculations on the size of Johnny's heart into this matter. Next, we'll get into the differences between the two theories of behaviorism. FK08 Distinguish between radical and methodological behaviorism. Radical behaviorism and methodological behaviorism are conflicting philosophies. Methodological behaviorism insists that private events are not a worthy subject matter for a science of behavior since they cannot be observed. This was the first type of behaviorism that emerged and the name was coined by John B. Watson. Radical behaviorism began under Skinner as an evolution of Watson's methodological behaviorism that, by contrast, claimed that private events are behavior and are worthy of studying. Radical behaviorism believes that private events exist and that they are affected no differently by the contingencies controlling operant behavior than any other behaviors are. This modern philosophy is taken up by the vast majority of behaviorists today. Now that we've learned the theories of behaviorism, let's talk about the different applications of behavior analysis. FK09. Distinguish between the conceptual analysis of behavior, experimental analysis of behavior, applied behavior analysis, and behavioral service delivery. Each of these four topics is a different aspect of behavior analysis. Let's break them down. First up, the conceptual analysis of behavior. This refers to the philosophy and theories behind behavior. By knowing the concepts behind behavior, one can understand how to keep one's practice of behavior analysis conceptually systematic and how to conduct research that makes sense within the principles of behavior. Next, we have the experimental analysis of behavior, or EAB. EAB refers to work done in highly controlled laboratory settings for the purpose of further exploring the basic principles of behavior analysis. Often in these studies, rats or pigeons are used, and experimenters look at specific variables that affect performance in the form of a simple, arbitrary response, recording data using a cumulative record. Experimenters can test out different variables, such as schedule changes, effects of drugs on performance, deprivation levels, and more. Next up, we have Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA. ABA refers to the utilization of research designs to develop behavior analytic techniques that result in socially significant change in society. Interventions that target any behavior of humans or other organisms can be ABA interventions as long as they adhere to the seven dimensions of ABA and the change they result in is socially significant. Last up, we have behavioral service delivery. Behavioral service delivery 
refers to using techniques already validated in ABA to provide desirable behavior change to clients. Sometimes, ABA is referred to more broadly to include service delivery as well. The key difference is that ABA attempts to find new information while behavior service delivery uses already known information to inform interventions. On to the basics. Let's talk about behavior. FK10, behavior, response, response class. A behavior is any action a dead man is unable to do. To be more technical, a behavior is a muscular, glandular, or neuroelectrical response. Muscular behavior includes any movement of the body. Glandular behavior includes things like sweat or tear secretion. Neuroelectrical behavior includes electrical pulses and behavior of neurons. Although glandular and neuroelectrical responses are legitimate examples of behavior, behavior analysts typically focus on muscular behavior. The terms behavior and response can be used interchangeably. A response class is a group of responses that are grouped up for one of three reasons. The first reason is that they look similar or share similar topographies. A response class of Taekwondo moves may include different styles of punches and kicks that would all fit into the response class of Taekwondo moves due to their similarity in physical topography. These response classes could be broken down even further, such as into two separate response classes, kicks and punches. Another way to organize response classes is by the function the behavior serves. For example, telling your son to cut the grass, taking the mower out and mowing the lawn yourself, and calling a lawn service will all result in a mowed lawn. Therefore, all of those behaviors fit into the same functional response class. Lastly, behaviors can be organized into a response class based on whether they are all reinforced or punished if one behavior gets reinforced or punished. For example, Jamar is at his favorite ice cream shop and greets the scooper, Hey there! The scooper responds, What do you want? in a snappy tone and makes Jamar feel bad about it. Jamar greets in a bunch of ways such as hello, how are you, and howdy that all got punished, in other words, will occur less frequently, to this ice cream scooper due to the punishing consequences, the snapping reply, that occurred after Jamar said, hey there. Just as important as behavior is the environment. Let's go. FK11. Environment, stimulus, stimulus class. A stimulus is a thing that can be sensed by one of the five senses. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, or sight. The environment is anything currently present that can be sensed. Most things qualify as stimuli, but will only be relevant to which senses the organism has to work with. For example, humans are unable to detect x-rays without machinery, thus x-rays are not stimuli to humans. Stimuli that fall under the same stimulus class will all share common physical properties. For example, a fire truck, a red bull, and a raw steak all share the common property of being red. Therefore, they are in the stimulus class red. Stimuli that have the same function can also be in the same stimulus class. For example, a note saying, go take out the trash, and your wife gently asking you to take out the trash are two stimuli that will both evoke that behavior. Up next, we'll review stimulus equivalence. Stimulus equivalence is a training procedure used to transfer control of a stimulus to another stimulus that is accepted by the verbal community as meaning the same thing or representing the same thing as the original stimulus.
For example, a picture of a dog, the written word dog, and the spoken word dog are all functionally equivalent, but each is a stimulus one experiences in a different way. Using stimulus equivalence procedures can be an efficient way of teaching relationships between sound stimuli to generate additional relationships without additional training. Full stimulus equivalence is achieved when all relationships between these stimuli are formed. To review this training procedure and how it can result in generative responding, check out the item J14. Let's chat a bit about respondent behavior. FK13, reflexive relations US to UR. Reflexive relations are what you get when exposure to a stimulus causes an automatic, unconditioned response. In this type of relationship, the past consequences of the behavior are irrelevant, and this stimulus, the unconditioned stimulus, will elicit the response in the individual without any previous exposure to the stimulus. Typically, reflexive responses are glandular or neuroelectrical responses, but they may also include muscular responses, such as when the doctor tests your knee-jerk reflex. Exposure to the stimulus of the hammer hit causes the knee-jerk response to occur, and the doctor measures its intensity. Pavlov, in his experiments involving his now-famous dogs, studied the relationship the exposure to the smell of food has with salivation. Salivating is a behavior that will occur when an organism is exposed to the smell of appetizing foods with or without any previous exposure to the consequences. Another example would be the behavior of pupils. When exposed to bright lights, pupils will shrink. No training with exposure to bright light is required. Up next, we'll talk about how new stimuli can elicit these types of reflexive behaviors. FK14, Respondent Conditioning, CSCR. Respondent conditioning refers to the pairing of a neutral stimulus, such as a ringing bell, with an unconditioned stimulus, such as appetizing food. A conditioned stimulus is a stimulus that gains the eliciting properties of the unconditioned stimulus due to the temporal pairing of the two. In Pavlov's experiment, he rang a bell every time food was presented. Food is an unconditioned stimulus that elicits salivation, and by pairing the bell with the presentation of the food, the bell also obtained the eliciting power over the dog's salivation response. This ended up meaning that when the bell was later presented on its own, the dogs would still salivate even though the food was not there. However, when Pavlov would then repeatedly present the bell without the food enough times, the bell would eventually lose its listening power and return to being a neutral stimulus. This process is called respondent extinction. The way to prevent this is to conduct intermittent pairings of a conditioned stimulus, like the bell, with an unconditioned stimulus, like the food. In Pavlov's dog example, this would help the bell to remain a CS and keep its eliciting power. Respondent conditioning is often considered when analyzing phobias. Exposure to certain stimuli can elicit what is called the activation syndrome, essentially the fight-or-flight response. This includes secretion of adrenaline, increased heart rate, and increased rate of breathing to help slow the individual's heart down. If a person has a spider phobia, it is likely that exposure to spiders elicits this activation syndrome. Exposure to spiders, in this case, is a CS. To treat phobias, systematic desensitization is commonly used. This treatment consists of exposing the individual to a hierarchy of fear-producing stimuli from least to most frightening in a calming environment 
to bring about respondent extinction between the stimuli and the activation syndrome. If the individual is repeatedly exposed to the fear-producing stimuli without the unconditioned stimulus that may have caused the fear in the first place, for example, a spider bite or the feeling of the spider crawling, they can diminish the phobia by decreasing the intensity of their activation response by gradually increasing threshold of frightening spiders that they encounter without experiencing fear. Now, we'll compare this with operant conditioning. FK15, operant conditioning. Operant conditioning and the behaviors involved in it are the primary objects of study for behavior analysts. Operant behavior is said to be controlled by the law of effect. This law states simply that the effects of our actions will determine whether or not they will be repeated. Operant conditioning involves our four main contingencies, positive and negative reinforcement and punishment, as well as extinction and recovery, and is concerned with how those elements interact around different stimulus conditions. Any behavior that is not respondent is controlled by consequences and is best explained as occurring due to the past consequences of engaging in it. For example, we would analyze the behavior of drinking water occurring because it has resulted in a mouthful of water in the past. It would be incorrect to state that a person is drinking water to get water because this implies projected future consequences to explain behavior rather than past consequences. The process of operant conditioning involves controlling a behavior by employing the application of its contingencies. For example, let's say you ask for help and help arrives, resulting in an increase in asking for help behavior. Later, when you need help again, you are more likely to ask for help because doing so has resulted in help in the past. Sometimes, behavior can be controlled both operantly and respondently. We'll talk about how next. FK16, Respondent Operant Interactions. Sometimes, a respondent behavior will have operant consequences to it. Let's look at Pavlov's example with the food, the salivation, and the bell. When the bell is presented, often there is food also presented, which causes the dogs to salivate. Saliva assists with the digestion of food, which is operantly reinforced by the dog's digestive system being better suited to digest the incoming food. The contingency looks like this. Before, not prepared to digest food, behavior, salivate, and the consequence being now prepared to digest food. Now our pup's eating behavior will occur with more reinforcing consequences and will influence the future occurrence of the behavior. This contingency could potentially increase both the future frequency and the intensity of the dog's salivation response. Malat and Shane, 2007, contend that all behavior may be operant and none of it respondent. Let's look at another example, one that involves exposure to a light and pupil shrinking. We have a U-S-U-R relation between exposure to light and the eliciting of pupil shrinkage. An operant approach to explain this behavior is before there's a bright light, behavior shrink pupils, and the consequence is less bright light. What kind of contingency is this? Answer. This would be a negative reinforcement contingency. The bright light is an aversive stimulus, and it is escaped by the pupil shrinking. Although operant consequences can influence the intensity of a respondent behavior, 
The key feature to a respondent behavior is that the behavior will occur simply because the stimulus is presented. Additionally, the behavior will continue despite any consequences. Next up, we'll break down some of the components of operant conditioning. FK17, Unconditioned Reinforcement. Unconditioned reinforcement occurs when a reinforcement contingency includes an unconditioned reinforcer. An unconditioned reinforcer is a stimulus that functions as a reinforcer without any need to pair it with other reinforcers. Examples include warmth, water, vision, sexual stimulation, and physical touch. All of these are reinforcing due to the biological makeup of humans and do not require any conditioning to be reinforcing. A reinforcer only refers to the stimulus that increases future frequency of behavior, whereas reinforcement is when a reinforcer is presented after a behavior, resulting in an increase of that behavior. If it is cold, cuddling up to someone resulting in warmth would be an example of unconditioned reinforcement. This is different when there's some learning involved, which we'll talk about next. FK18 Conditioned Reinforcement Conditioned reinforcement occurs when a reinforcement contingency includes a conditioned reinforcer. A conditioned reinforcer is a stimulus that is reinforcing due to its pairings with other reinforcers. The pairing procedure is the procedure that forms both conditioned reinforcers and conditioned punishers. When a neutral stimulus is temporarily paired with a reinforcer or punisher, the neutral stimulus will cease to be neutral because it will acquire some of the reinforcing or punishing power of the other stimulus. For example, let's say my water bottle has been frequently paired with water, making my water bottle a conditioned reinforcer. When I am water deprived, in other words, I feel thirsty, finding my water bottle will reinforce those water seeking behaviors. This is a conditioned reinforcement contingency. Next, we'll review the different types of punishment. FK19 Unconditioned Punishment Unconditioned punishment occurs when a punishment contingency includes an unconditioned punisher. An unconditioned punisher is a stimulus that functions as a punisher without having been paired with any other punishers in the past. For example, pain is an unconditioned punisher. It will decrease rates of behavior without any need for pairing. Some other examples include loud noises, the smell of spoiled food, and extreme temperatures. Let's now talk about punishment when there's some learning involved. FK20, Condition Punishment. Condition punishment occurs when a punishment contingency includes a condition punisher. A condition punisher is a stimulus that functions as a punisher because it has been paired with other aversive stimuli. Often, condition punishers can serve as warning stimuli. A warning stimulus is a stimulus that commonly precedes an aversive stimulus and, when it is terminated, causes that aversive stimulus to be avoided. For example, a low gaslight on your car may be a warning stimulus that has been paired with your car coming to a dead stop. If you fill your car with gas, the light goes away and the dead stop consequence will be avoided. Condition punishers can also be conditioned by being paired with the loss of reinforcers. For example, if a dad telling his son, I'm disappointed in you, has a history of being paired with the loss of video games for a week, you can bet that this statement from dad will become a conditioned punisher. Let's now talk about how reinforcement and punishment can be implemented. FK21 Schedules of Reinforcement and Punishment 
Schedules of reinforcement and punishment refer to the manner in which reinforcement and punishment are delivered. This can vary by the number of responses required for a consequence, the intensity of the stimulus, the time between responses, the time since the last consequence, or other stimulus conditions. Number of responses refers to how the ratio schedule is set for certain number of instances of the response to produce the consequence. For example, a response can produce a reinforcer on every response in FR1 or every five or so responses of VR5. Intensity of stimulus refers to how reinforcing or punishing a stimulus is. For example, you could receive a 10-volt shock or a 100-volt shock, and they would each likely have different effects on behavior. Time between responses indicates implementation of spaced responding in DRL and DRH schedules in which a response that occurs too quickly or slowly may or may not result in the consequence. Lastly, different stimulus conditions can signal different schedules of reinforcement and punishment. For example, watching Netflix at work may result in no punishment if the boss isn't in the office that day, but may result in a performance talk if they are. But what if clicking Netflix no longer brings up Netflix? Extinction! FK22 Extinction. Extinction occurs when a response that was previously being reinforced no longer results in that reinforcing consequence. This can occur with both positive and negative reinforcement contingencies. For positive reinforcement, let's look at this contingency for Joe. Before, he has no water. The behavior is that he turns the sink handle and puts the cup under the faucet, and the consequence is now that he has water. Joe forgot to pay his water bill, so this behavior has been put on extinction, and the contingency is now, before Joe has no water, the behavior is that he turns the sink handle and puts the cup under the faucet, and the consequence is that he still has no water. As a result of this, the frequency of Joe turning on the sink will decrease until his water is turned back on. In negative reinforcement extinction, an aversive stimulus that was previously removed by a response proceeds to stay in place despite the response. Joe Singh has a hot and cold water lever that he needs to balance out in order to avoid being scorched by blazing fire hot water. If he turns the cold lever about halfway, the water will not be blazing hot and he can wash his hands without fear. Here's the contingency. Before, there's blazing hot water. The behavior is that he turns the cold lever halfway and the consequence is that there's no blazing hot water. Now, let's say Joe has been having issues with his water heater and his sinks have only been spitting out blazing fire hot water, no matter how he sets the water temperature. Our negative reinforcement extinction contingency will look like this. Before, there's blazing hot water. The behavior is that he turns the cold lever halfway, and the consequence is that he still has blazing hot water. This contingency will decrease Joe's attempts to turn the cold lever halfway until he gets someone to fix his water heater. Poor Joe. Let's talk about automatic contingencies next. FK23, automatic reinforcement and punishment. Automatic reinforcement and punishment refer to when the consequences of behavior occur without any social mediation. This means that the consequences will occur in a free operant setting. In other words, whenever the behavior occurs, the consequence will occur. For example, every time somebody drinks out of a glass with water in it, they will get a mouthful of water regardless of who is or isn't present. In addition, if you touch a hot stove, 
you will end up with a burnt hand no matter what the environmental conditions are. On to stimulus control. FK24, stimulus control. Stimulus control, also known as stimulus discrimination, refers to a response recurring more when one stimulus is present than when another stimulus is. This will always be the result of a discrimination training procedure described in FK35. For example, people are more likely to plug their headphones into their phone if it is on more than if it is off because that response is not reinforced by rad tunage when it is off. As a result, this behavior will no longer occur when the phone is off, but does occur when the phone is on and proper motivation is present. Sometimes, a stimulus can serve as multiple different things. Tune in to find out how, right now. FK25, multiple functions of a single stimulus. One stimulus is capable of serving multiple functions. What that stimulus functions as is relevant to what you are analyzing it compared to. Let's look at the stimulus of running water from a sink. When analyzing the function of this stimulus with respect to turning on the sink, the running water is a reinforcer. However, the running water is not only a reinforcer, but is also an SD for putting your hands under the faucet that results in water on your hands. So, the running water serves as both a reinforcer and an SD in this example. Here's another example. Seeing the clock at 6 p.m. when an unwritten paper is due at 9 p.m. The sight of the display time under the conditions of not having the paper done will serve as a learned aversive stimulus. This sight may also have an evocative effect on behaviors that result in a paper being completed. Additionally, it could have an abative effect on procrastination behaviors such as eating snacks or turning on Netflix. Most stimuli have multiple functions like this, and it is important to consider which features of any given stimulus are relevant to the contingency you are analyzing. Next up, we'll get into motivating operations. FK26, unconditioned motivating operations. A motivating operation is a stimulus or condition that first, increases or decreases the reinforcing effectiveness of a stimulus, and second, will affect the frequency of behavior that has resulted in that stimulus in the past. Unconditioned motivating operations will do all of this without any learning history necessary. They are the MOs that exist for unconditioned reinforcers. For example, food deprivation, such as not having eaten for 10 hours, will both increase the reinforcing effectiveness of food and make behaviors that have previously resulted in food more likely to occur. Deprivation is a common motivating operation, but there are also others. Excessive salt consumption, recent exercise, or hot temperatures can all be UMOs for water as well. And now on to conditioned MOs. FK27, Condition Motivating Operations. A condition motivating operation is a condition that has gained establishing or abolishing effects relative to a stimulus or evocative and abative effects relative to a behavior by being paired with an unconditioned motivating operation. Exposure to this new stimulus will now carry some of the value-altering and behavior-altering properties of the original motivating operation. The next task list item will break down the three different kinds of CMOs. If you'd like to explore them further, check out Kyle Miguel's interpretation of Jack Michael's original article on CMOs. Let's review the types of CMOs out there. FK28, transitive, reflexive, and surrogate motivating operations. The three types of CMOs 
are the surrogate, reflexive, and transitive motivating operations. With the CMOS, the surrogate, a stimulus is simply being paired with an establishing operation that gives a stimulus the value-altering and behavior-altering properties of the operation. For example, let's say you always work out really hard at the gym and you sweat a lot, which creates a motivating operation for water. One day you go to the gym on a non-workout day to grab something you accidentally left there and you find yourself craving water. The gym is now a CMOS for water because being in the gym in and of itself, even if you are not working out, increases the value of water and makes water-seeking behaviors more likely. When thinking about our next type of CMO, the CMOR, or reflexive CMO, consider the presence of warning stimuli. A CMOR is the pairing of a stimulus with a worsening event that makes its removal more reinforcing and behaviors that result in its removal more likely. For example, let's say you are speeding 90 miles per hour down a 70 mile per hour freeway and you see a cop. Your speed in the presence of the cop is a CMOR due to the pairing of the current combination of stimuli, in other words, your speed in the cop's presence, with the history of these stimuli resulting in a ticket. This set of circumstances immediately evokes the behavior of pressing the brake pedal, slowing your vehicle down to the legal speed limit. Due to the termination of the high-speed driving, you squeak past the officer without being stopped. Phew! Lastly, there's a CMO transitive, or CMOT. With a CMOT, a stimulus becomes more valuable following an environmental variable that increases the effectiveness of the stimulus as a reinforcer. Think of a CMOT as needing something to access something else. For example, if you were under a food deprivation condition and the only food around was locked in a cabinet, the CMOT would be the fact that the key is more reinforcing and will evoke behaviors that have resulted in obtaining that key in the past, and the greatest increases of all will occur in those behaviors that successfully resulted in obtaining that key. Ultimately, the food deprivation is the UMO driving these behaviors. However, finding the key will allow access to the food, making the absence of the key a highly valuable CMO. MOs and SDs can be difficult to tell apart. Let's review their differences now. FK29. Distinguish between a discriminative stimulus and the motivating operation. A discriminative stimulus is a stimulus that signals that a particular response will be reinforced or punished. All this stimulus does is signal that availability of a consequence for a particular response, whereas a motivating operation refers to the alteration of a stimulus's value and of the likelihood that behaviors that are occurring will result in that stimulus. Let's go through an example. You had a fun evening out into town. Some funny beverages and excessive dancing have created a motivating operation for food. This means food will serve as a strong reinforcer for behavior, and behaviors that have previously resulted in obtaining food will be likely. You first walk over to the pizza by the slice place, and they have closed their doors, an S-delta signaling that purchasing behaviors will not result in pizza. You then go outside, and you find a hot dog stand that is open. You engage in purchasing behaviors by exclaiming, I'll take four hot dogs. You hand over your money and receive your dogs. The guy at the stand served as an SD indicating that these purchasing behaviors would result in food. Due to the food-motivated condition resulting from your excessive dancing and beverage consumption, you tried several different behaviors that had resulted in food in the past. For example, going to pizza places and hot dog stands, 
But after tonight, you are now increasingly more likely to go to the hot dog stand under this condition. This is due to the value-altering effect of the MO affecting the future frequency of the behavior. The SD was the open hot dog stand, but the openness of the hot dog stand had no effect on the value of those hot dogs. The drinking and dancing did, making them motivating operations. Next, we'll compare how MOs relate to the effects of reinforcement. FK30. Distinguish between motivating operation and reinforcement effects. As discussed in the last section, a motivating operation is a stimulus or condition that has both a value-altering effect and a behavior-altering effect. The value-altering effect of a stimulus refers to its strength as the reinforcer, along with how much it will increase or decrease the behavior when it is presented. Behavior-altering effects refer to behavior that will occur in the present moment and have resulted in the target stimulus in the past. Reinforcement effects, on the other hand, refer to the actual increase in behavior that occurs when a stimulus is presented. These topics are interrelated because the motivating operation determines how strong the effects of reinforcement will be. Going back to the hot dog example, the MO was the excessive drinking and dancing, which made the hot dogs more valuable. The reinforcement effect is your increased likelihood of going to the hot dog stand at future times when you are hungry and purchasing more hot dogs due to the delivery of the hot dogs on your night out. Next up, we'll review what a behavioral contingency is and how all these components factor in. FK31, Behavioral Contingencies. A behavioral contingency consists of three or four components. Two of these components are antecedents of behavior, the SD and the MO. In contingencies that involve aversive stimuli, the presence of an aversive stimulus can serve as a motivating operation. Otherwise, there could be deprivation or other environmental factors that will alter the value of any given stimulus. The SD is an optional component to a contingency because not all behaviors are discriminated. For example, scratching your arm to remove an itch is not a discriminated contingency because the itch removal consequence will occur every time the scratching behavior occurs. But if the contingency is discriminated, include it. Next up is the behavior. In other words, what did the organism do? Lastly, the consequence of a behavior is what determines which kind of contingency it is, as well as the future frequency of responding. Let's go through each of the contingencies. When a reinforcer is presented after a behavior, that is positive reinforcement. If an aversive stimulus is presented after a behavior, that's positive punishment. If a reinforcer is removed after a behavior, that's negative punishment. If an aversive stimulus is removed after a behavior, that's negative reinforcement. If a reinforcer is no longer presented after a behavior, that's an example of extinction. If an aversive stimulus is no longer presented after a behavior, that's an example of recovery from punishment. If a reinforcer is no longer removed after a behavior, that's also an example of recovery from punishment. And if an aversive stimulus is no longer removed after a behavior, that's another example of extinction. Next up, we'll review contiguity. FK32. Contiguity. Contiguity refers to the time between a response and the delivery of a consequence for that response. Experimental research has shown that the more immediately a reinforcer is delivered, the more effective it is, and that its reinforcement value can drop off quickly as time continues to elapse. After 60 seconds of time, reinforcement is not possible for a response without rule-governed behavior. For reinforcement to be most effective, 
One should aim to deliver reinforcers within 0 to 3 seconds. Next, we'll review functional relations of behavior and reinforcers. FK33 Functional Relations A functional relation is what is said to be formed when a valid research design has experimentally proven that a certain variable causes a reliable change in behavior. This can be seen on graphs that display a clear contrast between baseline and intervention conditions. For example, if we were to assess the effect of teaching pecs on a learner's frequency of mans, and we ended up seeing an increase from 0 mans per hour to 8 mans per hour, this would demonstrate that there would be a functional relation between teaching pecs and manding. Next up, we'll review what it looks like when two stimuli are necessary to serve as an SD. FK34 Conditional Discriminations A conditional discrimination is when two or more stimuli are required for a behavior to result in a particular outcome. Let's consider how speeding tickets affect behavior. Seeing that your speedometer is displaying a high speed, or seeing a cop, will not each independently be conditions in which more pressing on the gas pedal will be punished. However, if you see your high speedometer setting, and you see a cop both at the same time, pressing the gas pedal is likely to result in you being pulled over and getting a ticket. When either one of these stimuli was not present, the discrimination contingency was inactive, but the fact that both components were present created the conditional discrimination. On to stimulus discrimination. FK35, stimulus discrimination. A stimulus discrimination is when a response is more likely to occur in the presence of one stimulus than another due to a discrimination training procedure. A discrimination training procedure is a procedure in which a specific response is reinforced or punished more frequently if and when it is in the presence of a certain stimulus. To put it simply, stimulus discrimination is a result of a discrimination training procedure. Repeat after me. Stimulus discrimination is a result of a discrimination training procedure. Perfect. For example, Pressing the brew button on your coffee machine will only result in the pot getting filled with coffee when the machine has coffee and a filter in it. The training procedure includes receiving coffee after pressing the brew button when there is both coffee and a filter in the machine versus not receiving coffee after pressing the brew button when there is no coffee and or no filter in the machine. As a result, stimulus discrimination will occur which is when you start pressing the brew button more frequently when there is a filter with coffee in the machine and less frequently when there is not, assuming the freshly brewed pot of coffee is a reinforcer. Next up is response generalization. FK36, response generalization. Response generalization refers to different forms of functionally equivalent responses occurring to the same stimulus. When comparing stimulus generalization with response generalization, a good trick is to identify what there is more of, stimuli or responses. If there are more responses than stimuli, it will be response generalization. For example, if you want ice cream and you are choosing between the options of going to the store, going to an ice cream stand, and telling your husband to pick up some ice cream, this would be an example of response generalization because only one stimulus is involved here, which is that motivating operation for ice cream and not having any, but we are looking at multiple responses, all of which have resulted in ice cream in the past. Another example would be flipping eggs while cooking breakfast. Multiple response choices that will all result in flipped eggs can include a fancy flick of the wrist, 
using a spatula, or using a wooden utensil. Often compared with response generalization is stimulus generalization, which we will review now. FK37, stimulus generalization. In contrast to response generalization, stimulus generalization refers to a single response occurring to many different stimuli. This occurs because there are similarities between the trained stimuli and the novel stimuli evoking the response. For example, a young child who hasn't learned all of his animals yet, but has a pet cat, might refer to dogs, rabbits, and cats all as cats. These stimuli, each of them furry mammals, all share some common properties with the family cat, properties that the child perceived when his response of verbalizing cat was reinforced. Thus, the response of saying cat will occur to all these other animals as well until he has taught the differences between them. Stimulus generalization is the exact opposite of stimulus discrimination. When there is a lot of generalization, there is no discrimination. The child in the example has not yet learned that a dog is called a dog, even though the response of saying dog would be reinforced by parental approval in the presence of a dog. The response cat occurring in the presence of the dog is an example of stimulus generalization, and it will remain until the child is taught the discrimination. Next up, we'll review behavioral contrast. FK38, behavioral contrast. Behavioral contrast is a phenomenon that occurs with a single behavior across multiple settings. If one setting alters the frequency of a behavior in one direction due to a change in contingencies, and another setting yields the opposite effect with no change in contingencies, this is behavioral contrast. Positive behavioral contrast occurs when the frequency of the behavior in the unchanged setting increases because a decreasing procedure, such as punishment or extinction, is the change being implemented in the other setting. For example, Johnny's hitting was put on extinction at school and his frequency of hitting decreased. But then, an increase in Johnny's hitting was observed at home where that behavior was not put on extinction. Negative behavioral contrast occurs when the frequency of the behavior in the unchanged setting decreases because an increasing procedure, in other words, reinforcement, was the change implemented in the other setting. For example, Johnny's manning was put on consistent reinforcement schedules at home, while the rate of reinforcement for Johnny's mans remained unchanged at school, resulting in decreased manning from Johnny at school. On to behavioral momentum. FK39, behavioral momentum. Behavioral momentum is a phenomenon that has picked up some steam in modern understanding of behavior. This theory suggests that behavior can work somewhat like momentum in physics, in which case if it is reinforced at a high rate and is uninterrupted by decelerators, such as punishment and extinction, it will continue to thrive. For example, someone who continuously engages in behavior that result in positive attention from a well-respected leader is going to continue to engage in those behaviors consistently. An interruption in the reinforcement schedule for these behaviors could throw progress off course depending on the behavior's resistance to change. A common procedure that utilizes this theory is the high probability request sequence. Generally, this procedure entails prompting a few easy responses before delivering the demand for a response the learner is less likely to engage in, in other words, a lower probability instruction, in order to increase the likelihood of compliance with that low probability demand. To learn more about a high P request sequence, check out item E09. Next up, we'll discuss what matching law is and its importance. FK40, matching law. 
Matching law is a phenomenon relating to concurrently available behaviors, which states that the quantity of each behavior's occurrence will be proportional to the amount of reinforcement that can be obtained by engaging in that behavior versus other behaviors. To find clean examples of matching law, behaviors on interval schedules of reinforcement are commonly compared with one another due to limitations in the maximum amount of reinforcements that can be obtained from different responses. For example, on a VI 30-second schedule, an organism can earn about two reinforcers per minute. On a VI 15-second schedule, four reinforcers per minute. Since one-third, or two out of the total six reinforcers can be obtained from responding on a VI 30-second schedule, matching law says that on that schedule, the organism will allocate one-third of responding towards that behavior. Similarly, since two-thirds, or four out of the total six reinforcers, can be obtained by engaging in the VI 15-second response, the organism will in that case allocate two-thirds of responding towards the behavior according to matching law. It may take a lot of exposure to these schedules of reinforcement for the behavior to conform to them, but results should eventually stabilize until it conforms perfectly. In real life, it can be difficult to find clean examples such as these, since in order to produce them, the schedules have to be very consistent and there must be a large amount of exposure to the contingencies. Some other factors affecting matching law are response effort, quantity of the reinforcer, concurrent contingencies, examples, reinforcement and punishment for the same response, latency to reinforcement, and learning history. Next up, we'll review different ways that behavior can be shaped. FK41, contingency-shaped behavior. Most operant behavior is contingency-shaped behavior. This is behavior that either occurs or does not occur due to direct exposure to the consequences of behavior. For example, running a stop sign and getting stopped by a police officer both suppress the pushing of your foot on your gas pedal at a stop sign without first stopping. The actual exposure to getting pulled over after this behavior is what will suppress it, not the general rule of, if I blow the stop sign, I will get pulled over. Similarly, if the learner frequently blows the stop sign and does not contact this punishment contingency, the learner may be more likely to do so in the future due to the inconsistency of getting pulled over after this behavior in the past. In addition to contingencies, we do see rules control much behavior too, and we'll discuss how they do so now. FK42, Rule Govern Behavior. A rule is a description of a behavioral contingency, and rule governed behavior is behavior that is controlled by such descriptions. Going back to our previous example, before ever getting pulled over for blowing a stop sign, you are likely aware of the rule, if I blow the stop sign, I will get pulled over. Now blowing through stop signs as a result of knowing this rule is an example of rule governed behavior. If this rule does not suppress your behavior, you probably realize that the likelihood of getting pulled over is too low to control the response, or that a new rule has developed, such as, if I blow the stop sign when I don't see any cops, I won't get pulled over. This new rule might make it more likely that you'll blow through the stop sign when there are no cops around. Rule governed behavior, however, can change into contingency-shaped behavior as soon as the behavior contacts the contingency. If you are governed by that new rule, you blow the stop sign, and you don't get pulled over, Control shifts from the statement of the rule to the contingency that the rule describes. What this means is that the statement of the rule no longer controls the response, but the actual history of blowing the stop sign and not getting pulled over does. Next, 
we'll give another review to our verbal operants, starting with the echoic. FK43, echoics. Echoic has the root word echo in it, which explains the concept perfectly. The antecedent for an echoic is a vocal stimulus, and the response will be a copy of that stimulus, which will then be reinforced by generalized conditioned social reinforcement. For example, if I say strawberry, and then another individual says strawberry right back, my behavior is the antecedent stimulus, and their behavior is an echoic. Then, generalized conditioned social reinforcement might be me replying, great job, that's right, strawberry. An echoic response has both formal similarity and point-to-point -point correspondence with the antecedent stimulus. Here's the contingency analyzing the speaker's behavior in an echoic. The SD is a vocal stimulus, the behavior is the echoic, which is a copy of that vocal stimulus, and it's reinforced by generalized conditioned social reinforcement. Formal similarity means that the response takes on the same topographical form as the antecedent, which in the case of an echoic is always a vocal response. Point-to-point -point correspondence means that each part of one stimulus matches each part of another stimulus in a meaningful way. The two vocal responses, strawberry spoken by the first person and strawberry spoken by the second person, have point-to-point -point correspondence because each part of the one vocalization matches each part of the other. The vocalized word strawberry also has point-to-point -point correspondence with the written word strawberry as there is a meaningful relation between the sounds of the word strawberry and the letters that match those sounds. Do the written word strawberry and the vocal word strawberry have formal similarity with each other? Answer. No, they do not. Since one stimulus is written and one is auditory, they are in different forms and are not topographically similar. Next up is the mand. FK44. Mands. Mands can be thought of as demands or requests for something specific to be delivered by another individual. The antecedent condition for a mand is the presence of a motivating operation, MO, for the desired reinforcer. Point-to-point -point correspondence and form of similarity are not necessary for manding. Here's a contingency analyzing the speaker's behavior in a mand. For our antecedent conditions, we have an MO for the reinforcer, with an SD being the listener is available. The behavior is the mand, and the outcome is the delivery of that reinforcer. A pure mand will be controlled only by the MO. Adding in stimuli such as asking, what do you want, makes the mand impure or non-spontaneous. The reinforcer for the man is a specific item or reinforcer the person doing the manding gets from the listener as a result of their manding response. A man can take any topographical form as long as it consistently results in the same reinforcer. For example, let's say an infant says goop and his parents consistently give him food afterwards. If goop occurs more frequently when the infant has not had food in a while, then it is a man. Even though goop would not likely result in food when said to strangers, the infant only needs to worry about his current verbal community, his parents. Pointing, a non-vocal type of mand, is another common type of mand, and it can consistently result in the desired, in other words, pointed to, reinforcer. On to the tact. FK45. Tax. Tax can be thought of as labels. 
the antecedent condition for attacked will always be a non-verbal stimulus. As with all verbal operants other than man's, the reinforcer for attacked is generalized condition social reinforcement. Here's the contingency analyzing the speaker's behavior. The SD is the nonverbal stimulus, then the tacting behavior occurs, and it's reinforced by generalized condition social reinforcement. Attack can be the labeling of a whole stimulus or of a feature of a stimulus. For example, saying, that's a cow, and saying, look at those weird ears, are both tacks in response to seeing a cow. As a learner's language skills advance, tacks typically occur with increasingly novel or out-of-place stimuli. For example, inside a grocery store, it is more novel for an individual to see a bird than to see a cash register, so people are more likely to tack the bird than the cash register, unless you have an individual who is fascinated with cash registers. A pure tact is a tact that will be evoked solely by the nonverbal stimulus with no need for a supplemental teaching instruction, such as verbally asking, what is this? Lastly, the interverbal. FK46, interverbals. Our next elementary verbal operant is the interverbal. Think of interverbals as simply back and forth conversation. An interverbal will have a verbal, though not necessarily vocal stimulus as an antecedent, and will be maintained by, once again, generalized condition social reinforcement. For example, if an individual says, I love ice cream, and someone responds with, me too, cake batter is my favorite flavor, the cake batter response is an interverbal. A response does not need to have formal similarity or point-to-point -point correspondence with its triggering stimulus in order to qualify as an interverbal. In the previous example, the response about cake batter has formal similarity, another vocal response, but not point-to-point -point correspondence because it is a totally different response. How could that response look if it also did not have formal similarity? If the speaker wrote out, me too, cake batter is my favorite flavor, instead of saying it, this would be an interverbal response that has neither point-to-point -point correspondence or formal similarity. Here's the contingency analyzing the speaker's behavior. The SD is a verbal stimulus, the behavior is the interverbal, and it's reinforced by generalized condition social reinforcement. It can be easy to encounter conversational behaviors and decide they qualify as interverbals, but make sure you pay attention to what the relevant stimuli are. Was there a nonverbal stimulus that triggered the response? If so, then the response is attacked. Did you hear a request for information or for some other specific reinforcer? This would be a mant. Note that many verbal responses have multiple operands, but you always want to choose the most salient one on the exam. Time for another review of our measurement procedures. FK47. Identify the measurable dimensions of behavior. Examples, rate, duration, latency, and inter-response time. This item will be a review of the items in the full task list that outline these measurement tools. Frequency and count. Definition. Frequency is simply the number of times a behavior occurs. The terms frequency or count can be used interchangeably. They mean the exact same thing. You may see either or both terms on the exam. Some examples of frequency are how many steps you've taken, how many bites of a cheeseburger a person has eaten, or how many times a dog has barked. Frequency is a great measurement for behaviors that have a discrete beginning and end, 
and for which the amount of occurrences is important. In practice, frequency is never recorded in isolation. Repeat after me. In practice, frequency is never recorded in isolation. Nice. For example, saying I took 20,000 steps leaves out the very important component of how long a time period is involved. We don't know if these 20,000 steps occurred within a day, a month, or a year. Our next measurement tool will help us incorporate that information as well. Rate. Definition. Rate refers to the frequency or count of a behavior divided by a unit of time. Examples of rate include how many steps taken within 24 hours, how many peer initiations per hour, or how many push-ups per minute. Unlike frequency, rate can be used as a sole measurement in many cases because it includes quantification for both the number of times a behavior occurs and the period of time in which it occurs. For practical purposes, it can be easier to first take frequency data and then convert it into rate after the observation period is complete. Having all data converted into rate makes data comparable with other data for analysis. Skinner frequently argued that rate is the best datum for capturing behavior and the only datum capable of calculating response probability. We won't dive too far into that philosophy, just know that it is a wonderful tool for measuring behavior. Like frequency, rate works best for behaviors that have a discrete beginning and an end and also have a consistent duration. As such, both frequency and rate are less promising measures for behavior that last varying amounts of time. For example, if we were to write out a definition for an episode of tantruming into Johnny's behavior plan, and then we said that Johnny engaged in an average of four such episodes per three-hour session, this may offer a misleading picture of what actually happened. It may be that Johnny had four tantruming episodes, and each one of them varied in duration from one to 45 minutes. Saying only Johnny engaged in four episodes per three-hour session leaves us not knowing whether the total tantruming lasted for four minutes or for three hours. This leads us to our next measurement tool, duration. Definition. Duration refers to the time that elapses from the beginning to the end of a behavior. It is for how long the behavior occurs. Examples of duration include how long you spend walking the dog, how long a child is in their seat, or how long it takes for your cookies to bake perfectly in the oven. Remember, always use a measurement system that is relevant to the intervention. Repeat after me. Always use a measurement system that is relevant to the intervention. Super! Duration is a wonderful measurement tool to use when the most relevant piece of information is how long the behavior is occurring. For example, you may want to decrease the length of Johnny's tantrums so you could collect duration data on the tantrums and then design goals based on decreasing those durations. Or, you may want to increase the amount of time Susie spends staying on task while taking her test. Again, you could collect duration data and design goals, this time based on increased duration of on-task behavior. What about forceful punching? Would this be a good behavior to use duration for? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Answer. If you gave thumbs down for this, you are correct. Since forceful punching is a behavior with a discrete beginning and end, and it usually does not vary in length, 
it is more relevant for us to collect rate data than duration data. What about fast light punching? Would this be a good behavior to use duration for? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Go ahead and kiss your brain if you gave a thumbs up. Nice work. Since the punching is occurring fast, durations are likely to vary. So single instances are not as meaningful as compared to forceful punching and duration would be an acceptable measure here. You may still choose to use rate, but that may be more effortful for your data collector. Next up, let's talk about latency. Definition, latency refers to the time that elapses between the signal or opportunity for a response and the beginning of that response. Examples include the time it takes after mom yells dinner for the child to start moving towards the dinner table, the time it takes after you tell your learner clap hands for them to begin clapping, or the time it takes for your dog to start moving after you have said come. You will want to take data on latency when it is a relevant part of what your learner is currently doing. If you are running a one-step instruction program, such as the hand clapping example, and your student takes 20 seconds to begin each instance of the action after the instruction is delivered, you may want to collect latency data and begin to reinforce shorter latency responses. For example, you could reinforce correct responses only if they occur within 5 seconds and put responses that occur after 5 seconds on extinction even though they may be correct. Next up, inter-response time or IRT. Definition. Inter-response time or IRT refers to the time between responses of a similar response class. Some examples of the time between bites of food taken, the time between therapist delivery of SDs, or the time between burpees at a workout class. Ugh, burpees. IRT is a useful measure when you are dealing with behaviors that are either occurring too quickly or too slowly. The behaviors don't have to be the same, but again, they should be within the same response class. For example, for time between therapist delivery of SDs, you can calculate the time between the SDs, even though the therapist is likely delivering several different SDs. To calculate average IRT, record the time between the responses. In other words, the time between when one response ends and the next response begins. Add all these times together and divide the sum by the total number of times recorded. For example, if you have inter-response times of 5 seconds, 7 seconds, and 9 seconds, you would add those numbers all together, equaling 21, then divide that by three. What did you get? Answer. If you got seven seconds as your average into response time, you are correct. Great. In our very last item for this section, we will discuss some advantages and disadvantages to our two types of measurement procedures, both continuous and discontinuous. FK48. State the advantages and disadvantages of using continuous measurement procedures and discontinuous measurement procedures. For example, partial and whole interval recording and momentary time sampling. The main advantage to using continuous measurement procedures is that this way you capture all of the data. However, Although they are the most thorough forms of measurement, they can be impractical. Taking continuous data means that the observer must be consistently watching the individual. When this is not feasible, 
Discontinuous measurement procedures can be a tool for estimating behavior that remains useful for analysis of behavior. Discontinuous measurements are useful because, again, they do not require the observer to observe for the entire interval. This frees them up for other tasks, such as instruction or more data collection. The biggest issues with these measurements are that they will not always be accurate and that they may skew the data, creating data artifacts. For example, whole interval recording has a tendency to underestimate behavior. In other words, to show less behavior that is actually occurring, and thus, it is a recording procedure that is best for continuous behaviors targeted for increase. Partial interval recording, on the other hand, tends to overestimate behavior or show more behavior than is actually occurring, and that makes it a great measurement tool for behaviors targeted for decrease. Momentary time sampling does not tend to either underestimate or overestimate behavior. However, the measurement is considered to be more accurate when working with shorter interval lengths. Momentary time sampling can be used for behaviors targeted for either increase or decrease as long as they have appreciable amounts of duration. In other words, do not occur too quickly. Check out Section 8 for more references about when to use each measurement tool. Section Wrap-Up Thanks so much for joining me through this section of the Rogue ABA Audio BCBA Tasklist Tour. We hope that you found this resource helpful and will revisit it as necessary. Check out RogueABA.com or Instagram, Facebook, and or Pinterest pages to join the Rogue Tribe and access more learning resources. We would love to see you come tackle the task list.